Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you the audio from a recent webinar we held on the future of innovation policy. If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this webinar, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Next, you'll hear from Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach at Mercatus, who will be introducing this discussion between Adam Thier and Matt Ridley. Hello. My name is Karen Zarnecki, and I'm Vice President of Outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thank you for joining us today for an innovative conversation between two of the world's leading experts on the future of innovation policy in the United States and around the world. Leading the conversation will be Adam Thierer, Mercatus Center Senior Research Fellow and the author and editor of several books, including his foundational book, Permissionless Innovation, The Continuing Case for Comprehensive technological freedom. He specializes in innovation, entrepreneurialism, internet and free speech issues, with a particular focus on the public policy concerns surrounding emerging technologies. His most recent book, Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance, How Innovation Improves Economies and Governments, makes the case that we should embrace disruptive entrepreneurship that fosters innovation, drives economic growth, and makes government accountable to the governed. Adam will be joined by Matt Ridley, member of the UK House of Lords, also an author and columnist. His books have sold over a million copies and have been translated into 31 languages. These include The Red Queen, Genome, The Rational Optimist, and The Evolution of Everything. His most recent book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom, was published this year. Matt joined the House of Lords in February 2013 and has served on the Science and Technology Select Committee and the Artificial Intelligence Select Committee. He created the Mind and Matter column in the Wall Street Journal in 2010 and was a columnist for the London Times from 2013 to 2018. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and the Academy of Medical Sciences, and he's a foreign honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. With that, I want to thank you again for joining us today. And Adam, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Karen. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you introducing Matt for me because he has so many accolades and awards and distinctions that it would have taken me forever to do so. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm really pleased to be joined by one of my intellectual heroes, Matt Ridley, here today and talk about the future of innovation policy uh, throughout the world, but specifically in the United States and Europe. Uh, It's a topic a lot of our listeners are interested in. And let me, by way of beginning, just tell you a quick story about the importance of Matt Ridley's work to me. Because for the past 30 years, I've covered innovation policy for five different uh, nonprofit institutions, going all the way back to my time at the Adam Smith Institute in London in 1991. And in all those years, I struggled with the fact that in defending progress and prosperity and technological innovation, I've often been labeled a techno-utopian or a wild-eyed Pollyanna um, and various other things that not su- not suitable for print. Uh, but in, in hearing those critiques, I was always astonished because I always thought of myself as being very anti-utopian and very pragmatic in my worldview and empirical in thinking about progress and prosperity and the importance of technological innovation. And yet I, had a, I really struggled trying to figure out how to sort of brand myself and to brand the, the beliefs that I was trying to push forward. And then I joined Mercatus 10 years ago. And one of the first things that happened to me fortuitously is this book landed on my desk, Matt Ridley's book, The Rational Optimist. And from the day I started reading it until today, I have it totally reframed the way that I have tried to articulate and defend 
uh, progress, prosperity, and innovation. And so I was even more tickled when I learned just recently that Matt had this new book out on how innovation works, which is a masterpiece. And I just can't recommend it highly enough. Um, and these two books have really helped frame a, a way of thinking about prosperity and progress that I want Matt to begin talking to us about today and, and really begin, Matt, by explaining how you, you went from rational optimist to how innovation works and what the core themes are that connect these two books. Well, thank you, Adam. And uh, the, the admiration is mutual. I found your work incredibly helpful and insightful uh, when I was writing How Innovation Works and indeed at previous on previous occasions. Uh, so it's great to be able to connect. And I'm just sorry we can't be, that, be together in person. Um, how I went from The Rational Optimist to How Innovation Works with halfway between a, another book called The Evolution of Everything, which uh, was a success with reviewers, but not a success with readers. Almost nobody seemed to buy it. Um, uh, is is a is a really good question. And essentially, uh, the rational optimist. I set out to write a book about progress. What is it? Why does it sometimes happen? Other times not. Is the world getting better? Probably not much. A little bit here and there. I was amazed by what I found out, which was that in every way you could measure standards of living, we were wealthier, healthier, happier, cleaner, kinder, freer, more peaceful, more equal, all these sorts of things. And so I catalogued that. And I then decided to spend the rest of the book trying to say, well, how does this happen? Where does it come from? What is it? Why does it happen to us and not to other creatures? Um, this kind of progressive improvement in, in living standards. Oh, and by the way, you're quite right not to be uh, to, to let us be characterized as Pollyanna-ish um, uh, Panglossians. Quite the reverse. The whole point of what we're saying is that it has got better, but it's still a veil of tears compared with what it could be if we continue with, with these trends. So it became clear to me, which it, I'm sorry to say hadn't before, that the single cause of all of this is innovation. Nothing else explains it. You can't say, well, we've got more capital, we've got more land, we've got more labor, we've got, um, uh, you know, small resources. It, you know, none of that gives you nearly enough to explain what's happened. It's new devices, new rules, new tools, new uh, ways of living, things that improve the uh, productivity of our lives, things that improve the way we can work for other people and help other people. And so for me, the last 10 years, I've been more and more interested in innovation. And one of the things that struck me was that there isn't a good theory of innovation, actually. If you go and talk to economists about innovation, they either just assume it in their equations or they sort of you know, try and have a little bit of a theory about why it happens in some places and not in others. But, but frankly, uh, you know, ever since Adam Smith pointed out the importance of innovation, we've not really been able to explain why it happens when and where it does and why it happens in some industries and not others, and why it speeds up uh, at some times and not others. Um, so I set out to write a book that um, answered all those questions, and I haven't nearly succeeded, but I've got part way there is what I'm hoping people will think. Oh, I think you have succeeded. I think it's a wonderful book, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I want to broaden out our discussion about critiques of innovation in a moment to talk about the various flavors of criticism about technological innovation. But I actually want to work my way backwards a bit in your book and go to the very end and talk about something different, because this has been something I've watched a lot of your discussions about the book and heard you lecture about it. And you have some wonderful material at the end that you often uh, don't get asked about in the book. And it's interesting to me because 
There's all these critics of innovation. Again, we'll talk about them in a moment. But there's also another group of people, a group of people who believe in innovation, uh, but believe it only comes about because governments promote it or take an active hand in steering it, directing it, uh, making sure it comes uh, into, uh, into being. And you have this wonderful phrase uh, for these sorts of things. And we call it industrial policy and other things in, uh, in policy debates. But you talk about the myth of innovation creationism. And uh, the fact that it, the, the belief that innovation is the product of sort of intelligent government design. And you discuss the work of Mariana Mazzucato and various others who've advocated a very healthy role for the state, to put it simply, a uh, very expansive role in promoting technological innovation. So this is very different than the other critiques you face in the book and that we both work on. So begin with that discussion. What, what's wrong with the idea of innovation creation? Well, you're right that, that people who believe in industrial policy are pro-innovation. So in that sense, they're on the same side of the argument as us. But in another sense, they, in my view, really don't get the degree to which it's a bottom-up phenomenon. And this is very much the theme of my book, The Evolution of Everything, that a surprising amount of what happens in the world actually uh, emerges from the way we interact rather than is ordained by some intelligent designer. And we have, on the whole, moved away from making that mistake when we look at the natural world. We no longer look at a rainforest and say, look, this is so complex and so beautifully put together that it must imply uh, the existence of an intelligent designer. We say, no, there's another way, a bottom-up way called Darwinism. Uh, and so I feel we're making the same mistake about a lot of aspects of society, that we think that because uh, 10 million people eat lunch in London on a normal day, there must be a London lunch commissioner who organizes the food to be in the right place at the right time. I'm borrowing that from Frederick Bastiat. But uh, when it comes to innovation, we've seen a revival in recent years, as you say, of the theory that uh, innovation only really happens because the government makes it happen. And the prime example of this, which has some truth to it, uh, is that things like the internet and GPS and a lot of the electronics we, we have today are only possible because basically the U.S. Defense Department, uh, in uh, collaboration with Stanford University and various other organizations, um, made it happen. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. And my problem with that argument uh, is that, first of all, it confuses innovation with invention. Coming up with the first prototype of something is not the same as developing it in a way that it's reliable, affordable, and available to everybody. And if you take the internet, you know, DARPA developed some of the original ideas, but, you know, Corning developed the fiber optic glass that it runs on. You know, there's lots of uh, people who've contributed, and actually the vast majority of them have been in the private sector. Um, uh, and in fact, most of the internet has, has invented itself. We've invented it as we've gone along. Um, but beyond that, there's a number of other uh, points one can make. First of all, if the state is the only source of innovation, then how can we explain railways, steel, chemicals, textiles, all the other industries that showed incredible innovation in the 19th century when the state spent money on def national defense and debt repayments and nothing else, frankly? Secondly, uh, the US and the UK are countries which spent least on public research and development before World War I, uh, and they were the most innovative countries. Um, then there are classic examples like uh, the fact that the US subsidized uh, an airplane inventor with an enormous amount of money, Samuel Langley, in 1903, and his machine was a total flop, quite literally. It fell in the Potomac River after 20 yards. Um, but they didn't uh, spend any money on the Wright brothers from uh, Ohio, 
who did succeed 10 days later. Um, then most of the examples you get given about uh, industrial policy and the state creating innovation turn out to be spin-offs, not dividends. Uh, I mean, the DARPA was not trying to invent the internet. Uh, it happened to invent it uh, along the way. Japan is another good example, and the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union did have directed top-down uh, state-organized innovation, and all it came up with was Sputnik. It didn't come up with any consumer goods of any use to anybody, uh, whereas Japan came up with enormous amount of consumer electronics while spending less on public research and development than most other countries. It was nearly all private sector funding, and so on. So my view is that the, the new industrial policy fans, of which there are many in, in this in Britain in the Conservative government, but I think there are some a lot some in the Biden administration too, uh, are making a mistake if they think that the way to make innovation happen uh, is to order it to happen. That doesn't leave room for luck, serendipity, trial and error, lack of political connections, which is often, you know, right. it's the people with political collections who, who get the most grants, etc. Um, uh, and, you know, picking winners, the trouble with picking winners is that losers are good at picking governments. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's very interesting. You mentioned, uh, you know, the Biden administration, incoming administration here in the United States, and of course, many European governments favoring various types of industrial policy. But it strikes me that there's very few things as nonpartisan as the sort of love fester on industrial policy. The Trump administration had proposed right. a doubling of government spending on artificial intelligence and quantum computing and uh, in an effort to, quote unquote, be more like China, had talked about very heavy handed centralized direction, including the idea of a plan that was floated to nationalize 5G networks here in the States, which is astonishing to me. Totally. But that's a model that really many governments in Europe have already embraced. Uh, the French government, German government, and others have attempted to sort of build their own internet, their own search engines. I even heard there's an effort afoot to, to build a competing Airbnb model in Europe, to which I wonder, what's wrong with the regular Airbnb? Why isn't it serving that niche uh, quite nicely? But what 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 is it that the, the continuing allure of these sort of creationist uh, myths about industrial policy and, you know, how many bets can government make or should government make on using taxpayer money before realizing maybe it's better to let trial and error run its own course? Well, it, it, it's partly because if, if you're in government and you um, want to run things, then of course you want to run everything. And let's not forget that government takes 40% of people's money off them on average in the West and so it would be a shame if none of that money found its way back into innovation. So we mustn't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the first to say, uh, yes, of course I want R&D funded by the public purse because otherwise that money is lost to innovation. It goes into something else. And I think the, the European model has become increasingly top-down, particularly in the European Union. I mean, the, the, the model on which the European Union is based is, is thoroughly Napoleonic, that essentially that, that um, uh, the bureaucrat in Brussels knows best and is going to decide which technologies to choose, etc. Um, uh, and that has become uh, a, a really strong uh, view. Uh, that Because one of the things that lies behind it is an optimism about innovation that I think you and I don't fully share. I'm an optimist about innovation. I think there's amazing things it can achieve. But I'm not such a starry-eyed optimist that I think you can summon up an innovation to solve a problem necessarily 
if you want. There are certain problems you can't solve. I mean, you know, we can't repeal the second law of thermodynamics, so we can't make fuel out of water. It'd be nice if we could, but but we'd use more energy in doing so than we got back out again. And uh, I say this because at the moment, particularly today in the UK, the government is saying we're going to ban all diesel and petrol cars from 2030. From then on, you're only going to be allowed to buy an electric car. And yeah, we know the batteries take a lot of energy to make and a lot of emissions in the making of them. And they're made in China. So actually, those emissions come from coal plants. So they're even worse. And um, the range isn't very good. And the cost is immensely high. So we have to subsidize people to buy them. But don't worry, innovation is going to solve those problems in the next 10 years. Right. They may be right. But if they'd said in 1960, um, We'd like everyone to have a flying car and a, and a personal jet pack to move around their neighborhood uh, within 10 years. Innovators go and solve that problem. I think we're pretty sure they'd have failed. There are some things that innovation might not be able to deliver. And improvements in transport have proved very elusive over the last 50 years. We're still flying 747s, which were invented, which entered service in 1969, you know, 51 years ago. Right. I want to come back and ask you some follow-ups about that, but we already have a, a viewer who's asked a question based on your mention of China and the fact that I noted that a, a lot of governments are uh, trying to be, quote-unquote, more like China and follow that model for better or for worse. And, and certainly the China model is really interesting in terms of innovation, right? Because some people have called it techno-authoritarian, but other people have noted that it has elements uh, of uh, more entrepreneurial uh, spontaneity at the margins. How do you explain the innovations we've seen coming out of China in recent decades? And what are the lessons, if any, for the Chinese model for uh, European and uh, U.S. governments? Well, I'm not a huge expert on China. I've been there a couple of times and I've I've read a lot about it. But um, my understanding is that those who think that the reason China has become a very innovative economy, and it has, there's no, I'm not here to deny that it's, I'm not here to claim that it's just catching up with the West or something like that. It's, if you look at what they do with, um, you know, uh, digital payments for consumer goods and so on, it's way ahead of what, what we do here in the West. So it's become a very innovative economy. Those who claim that's because it's an authoritarian state with no freedom, which decides what in technologies to invest in, I think are misreading China badly. I think what happened in China uh, after the fall of Mao Zedong and under Deng Xiaoping's compromise was that it did not become at all politically free. Uh, If you're an entrepreneur trying to start a political party, well, good luck to you. You're not going to succeed. But if you're an entrepreneur deciding to start a business to make a new gadget or widget, then yes, actually, you are quite free. There are much, many fewer bureaucratic obstacles of the kind you face in the West. You know, beadles and bureaucrats who have to come and go over your plans and say, well, no, you can't do it here. You've got to do it there. And you can't do it this way. You've got to do it that way. And we're going to take two years to take a decision and all that kind of stuff. Now, that's, you know, a lot of that is designed to make us safe. And, you know, some of it's necessary. But in your terminology, China in innovation in China has been surprisingly permissionless for the last 30 or 40 years. Now, I think that's changing. As I read the Xi regime, 
uh, it is no longer in, uh, prepared to accept economic freedom as well as political, uh, let alone political freedom. Uh, and it is increasingly trying to decide what entrepreneurs will or won't do, um, what they can or can't do, what they can or can't say, yeah. which is just as important. And I like to draw a parallel with what happened a thousand years ago. The Song Dynasty in China was a time of huge innovation. That was the time of the compass, gunpowder, the printing press, paper money, all these kind of things. Um, and it was a very devolved, decentralized empire. It was an empire in which merchants were basically free to take their own decisions. Uh, they ran their own towns and cities in a sort of city-state-like way. After the Mongol interregnum, the Ming Empire took a completely different approach. The mandarins uh, in the capital decided whether a merchant could leave his hometown to trade. Um, they decided uh, that you had to report to the mandarins every month what you had in your warehouse if you were a merchant. Um, how to stifle trade and innovation, you couldn't have done it better. <laughs> so I think in a much shorter spell of time, China is going through a transition from a Song to a Ming dynasty, and that will that will stifle innovation. I don't think if we're having this conversation in 10 or 15 years' time, we'll be talking about China as a great innovator. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. In fact, just last week, I noticed uh, in the Wall Street Journal there was a report of uh, uh, the Chinese uh, basically stopping Jack Ma, the, na the nation's richest man, from going forward with an IPO uh, for his tech company. And uh, so there are strings attached with these grandiose sort of industrial policy schemes of a more uh, authoritarian nature, even if there's permissionless at the margin, that seems to be changing as well. Um, but I want to switch gears and get back to the bread and butter of, of your books and, and the critiques um, that we struggle with or deal with regarding the general benefits of innovation and the various types of uh, people that uh, and groups that are opposed to technological change more generally, because this has been a core theme of, of many of your books, especially over the last decade. And I want, I want to read just a, a quote uh, from your book, because you talk a lot in a lot of chapters about the importance of bottom-up innovation, trial and error experimentation again and again. And um, I love that Wright Brothers example, because this is where you have one of those quotes where you said, failure is often the father uh, of success uh, innovation. Tolerance of business failure has helped the U.S. in particular. Uh, and then you say, innovation's opponents seek any argument, however absurd, to defend the status quo. And it usually comes cloaked in the form of the so-called precautionary principle. And so this has been a, a, a core theme of, of both our, our work. And it, it's something that it's so interesting to me that after all of these years of of fighting about, there's still so many fans of the precautionary principle. And it strikes me that uh, a, a real serious deficiency of the precautionary principle is it does not allow for error, for failure. It tries to preemptively stop that. And in doing so, really stifles the sort of creativity and uh, learning we get that goes along uh, with trial and error experimentation. So walk us through that and draw the connection to public policy for our audience about what this means concretely for innovation policy, uh, both in Europe and in the United States? Yeah, the European Union has formally adopted the precautionary principle into its Lisbon Treaty, uh, saying that basically every policy must be tested against the precautionary principle. And in principle, that's fine. You, you, if you're just saying, let's be better safe than sorry, let's not be, let's not uh, uh, jump to conclusions that something is safe if we've got reasons to worry that it might not be. But it's not been interpreted that way. The precautionary principle, as interpreted in the European Union, very uh, much says um, 
we would like you to imagine all possible things that might go wrong with this technology, okay? We would like you to ignore all possible good things that might come with this technology. And we would like you to ignore the disadvantages of an existing technology. And when you've done that calculation, tell us whether you think we should go ahead with this technology. Well, I'm sorry, but that's utterly biasing the, the conclusion you come to, because essentially you're saying we only need, we only want to think about the downsides and we don't want to think about the downsides of what we're doing at the moment. So to give you a very specific example, organic farmers in the European Union are allowed to use copper hydroxide as a pesticide under a special derogation. This is a highly toxic chemical, very dangerous to human beings. Uh, organic farmers uh, are not allowed to use uh, BT crops. These are crops into which a gene has been engineered that is lethal to insects. Um, and uh, that technology has been used around the world. It's been used in many different crops. It's uh, pretty well all the cotton we wear has already been treated with it. Many of the meals we eat has already had BT in it. Uh, BT is a an enzyme that is totally harmless to everything except insects because uh, it only attacks a, a, a metabolism that's found in insects. Um, uh, it's a wholly safe technology. But because it's new, it's banned in the European Union, because it's possible to imagine that in some future scenario, in some way we don't know, that might turn out to be dangerous. Whereas copper hydroxide, well, we know that's dangerous, so that's fine. We'll go ahead and use it. I mean, this is the madness that comes with excessive use of the precautionary principle. Uh, it, as uh, my friend Ron Bailey has put it, um, uh, the precautionary principle as interpreted essentially says never do anything for the first time right that's right yeah and, and the problem with it at its core seems to be that there, there there's a misunderstanding that without risk there can be no reward there's to paraphrase the old thomas aquinas uh, uh line about you know if, if the sole goal of a captain was to make sure his ship never sank he'd never leave port but of course, that's not the only goal of a captain. They have other goals and they brave the high seas because there's benefits associated with doing so, even though there is uh, risks entailed in, in the process of that's going. That's a lovely quote. I hadn't heard that. That's beautiful. Yeah. But um, so in thinking a little bit more concretely about what the precautionary principle as applied through regulation is meant for humanity, I want you to tell the story, the golden rice story, because you talk about it in your book. It's something I've written about. And this is a this is a really troubling application to me of precautionary principle minded thinking. Just explain for our listeners what golden rice is and why that, how this all came to pass. A German scientist named Ingo Petrikus, working in Switzerland, decided at the end of his career that he would like to uh, use the biotechnology uh, that he was working in to do something for the good of humanity. Um, and he looked around the world and he decided that the simplest way benefit humanity with biotechnology that would save the most lives was to make sure that the rice plant had a gene in it that made the precursor of vitamin A. The maize plant already has it in it, uh, but rice doesn't produce vitamin A, essentially. All over the world in poor countries, particularly in cities, a lot of young, a lot of poor people are living on very little but rice, and they are chronically vitamin A deficient. And as a result of this, they have huge immune system problems. They also have a problem of going blind and actually dying. Many children are dying. Hundreds of thousands of children are still dying a year because of this problem. 
So he took the gene for vitamin A precursor, which is, as I say, in maize and lots of other foods as well, uh, from a maize plant and put it into a, a, a rice plant. Uh, so the rice now has a yellow color. It's called golden rice. He was opposed every step of the way by Greenpeace. They said, well, this is a corporate plot. He said, no, I've, I've, I've negotiated with all the corporate giants. They've all given away their intellectual property on this for free. Um, I'm not going to make a single penny of profit out of it. It's going to be distributed for free to people. Well, it might be dangerous. We don't know. Um, uh, well, sorry, here's all the feeding trials we can do. We can show that it's not dangerous. Besides, it's vitamin A. You know, I mean, how dangerous is vitamin A? Oh, well, there's not enough vitamin A in it. Well, that's true of the first prototypes, but we're working on that. We're getting better. Actually, now there is. Oh, well, now maybe there's too much vitamin A. <laughs> I, sit, I, I kid you not, every single one of these arguments has been used by Greenpeace. And, right. and Patrick Moore, the one of the founders of Greenpeace, actually got to the point where he uh, went around the world and he stood outside uh, Greenpeace offices um, with a banner saying, you are murderers. You know, you are you are deliberately denying a technology that can save lives to the poorest people in the world. How can you live with that on your conscience? Right. There's a, there's a, a, there's a beautiful book on golden rice. I'm suddenly struggling to remember the, the name of the author at the moment. Um, it, it's a, it's a well-known writer um, just came out last year, which I strongly recommend. So um, that's a, a horrifying example of right. denying a life-saving technology to the world. It strikes me what you said about how Greenpeace tried to have both make both sides of the argument too much, too little. I've often referred to this as sort of the Goldilocks myth of you can just dial in innovation just right, not too hot, not too cold. Um, of course, if you sit around waiting for that perfect formula, things pass you by. And we have real world examples of this. It's not just golden rice, but we can think about this in a geopolitical sense for entire nations or continents. Um, one of the things I've written about in my work and you have as well is just how sort of Europe sort of missed the digital revolution. It, it, I often survey crowds when I'm speaking at uh, law schools and econ programs. I often ask, you know, can anyone in the room name a, a leading European based digital technology company? And people really struggle to answer that question. And that's unfortunate because it's not like there's a shortage of entrepreneurial minds and, and people in Europe. But the, the in innovators and especially the in investors really seemed to flock. There was an exodus, and they came mostly to the United States and also to China because of a precautionary cast to European technology policy. Do you think that's right? Yes, I do. I think it's one of the, uh, one of the reasons why uh, Europe has failed to spawn any digital giants. I mean, there's plenty of small companies in, in Europe doing digital things. Uh, but China shows that... It can be done. You know, it doesn't. You don't have to be in California to start uh, uh, an equivalent to Amazon and Google. You know, you've right. got Alibaba and Tencent and so on in, in China too. And yet, Europe has failed to produce those, and it is a glaring failure on the on, on the part of Europe. The closest it came, arguably, was Nokia. Nokia became the dominant uh, firm in the mobile phone market by a mile. I mean, in the 1990s, Nokia was huge. It was spending more on R&D than the rest of the mobile phone industry combined. Um, and, uh, and then it fell from grace. Right. Uh, and what went wrong there was partly that Europe had imposed a um, 2G standard on uh, the continent for mobile telephony, which was good for voice but bad for data. 
And when the world started moving towards data, it was harder for European companies to shift, partly because Nokia got big and flabby and bureaucratic and slow. And when uh, companies brought, you know, Qualcomm complained about this, you know, when we went to Nokia and said, you know, how about this new stuff for handling data as opposed to voice? Uh, they took six months to get back to us, by which time we got bored and moved on to the next thing. And partly because Nokia didn't want to cannibalize its own dominance of voice. It thought if it produced phones that, that handled data well, then well, that would be a threat to its existing dominant market share in voice. So um, well, like a lot of us, it didn't see the iPhone coming. And, you know, a lot of other, you know, Steve Ballmer, the chief executive of of Microsoft said that uh, the iPhone will get no market share. It's it's right. a disastrous product. Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Nokia because I remember there was a very famous Fortune magazine cover featuring the, the chairman of Nokia with a headline that said something like, uh, can the mobile giant Nokia be stopped? And it was about Nokia and also Motorola. It, it happened to appear just a few months before Steve Jobs debuted the iPhone uh, in 2007. It was just poorly timed headline. If ever there was one, it reminds me of the, the now famous headline, what are we going to do about the MySpace monopoly? Um, and uh, this was done just shortly before Facebook was really starting to experience its growth. So this, you know, it's another sign that, uh, and you talk about this in the book that sort of Schubertarian change, creative destruction is still alive and well, but there are many people trying to throw up barriers to creative destruction. And this is something we see again and again in a policy sense. This is something that we at the Mercatus Center spent a lot of time focusing on is what are the barriers to innovation, the sort of low hanging fruit that we could just get rid of quite easily, whether it's occupational licensing laws that aren't necessary or uh, other types of uh, impediments to growth and innovation. What, what are some of the simple ways that, that the simple lessons from your work that public policymakers who are listening today or, or their staffs could to take away and, and act upon to advance the cause of innovation? Well, a lot of them are very specific, and so it isn't necessarily easy to generalize. But in general, nonetheless, I think the main thing that policymakers need to think about is removing barriers to innovation rather than creating incentives to innovation. There's tons of grants and subsidies out there for innovators if they want. A lot of them are very poorly targeted. A lot of them end up rewarding politically well-connected uh, entrepreneurs rather than uh, genuinely promising ones. Much more important for me is to remove the obstacles that get in the way of, of innovation. You mentioned occupational licensing, uh, but also um, uh, copyrights and patents, which have got ludicrously strong, uh, I think, and regulations generally, uh, you know, the, the, the petty regulations that, that stop you doing something new. Just think about nuclear power, for example. It's basically stuck with the 1950s technology and it never changes. Why? Because if you want to build a new nuclear power station with a totally new design, you will have to get that new design licensed. Getting a new design licensed will cost twice as much as getting an existing design licensed. It costs about a billion dollars to get an existing uh, design licensed. And, um, well, maybe not an existing one, but, you know, we're, we're talking hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars uh, in this. And once you do, you're not allowed to change your mind halfway through. You're not allowed to say, uh, I think actually we should um, make that wall uh, half an inch thicker, not half an inch thinner, you know, or something like that. You can't do that without going back to the regular and basically starting all over again. That's the way to stop innovation happening. That's an extreme example, obviously, um, but you see this all over the place. The, the, the line I like to give to governments is that it's not that regulators say no, 
It's that they take ages to say yes. Uh, you know, genetically modified crops are not banned in the European Union. But if, like BASF, you come up with a uh, blight-resistant potato with GM technology, and it takes you eight years to get a decision out of the European Commission, um, no wonder by that stage you've given up and moved your entire um, uh, research staff to, to America. Um, that's that's the reality. It's it's quick decision making by um, uh, regulators would be a huge help, and standing up to pressure groups. You know, because a lot of this stuff comes from pressure groups. Uh, I'm thinking of biotechnology again, but but there are other examples. In the book, I love to tell the story about how many technologies were opposed uh, when they first came in. The umbrella, the bicycle, coffee, all had huge campaigns saying these are lethal technologies. We shouldn't be allowed to near them uh, by vested interests. So the real problem is the way vested interests um, like to raise barriers to entry against their competitors. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, I know you cite one of my heroes as well, uh, Kalustas Juma, in his recent work on innovation and its enemies. Yeah. And, um, the, his book was a huge eye-opener to me. He was a wonderful guy. Amazing. Sadly, yeah, he died and, a few and years ago. There was a man who lived this firsthand, you know, fighting as he did when he was working with the UN, trying to fight on behalf of uh, innovation in, in other countries and continents and, and hearing all the arguments from precautionary principle. Um, I, actually, I, I want to ask a question from our audience because it's actually from my very first boss and someone you know. It's uh, Eamon Butler, uh, uh, who's uh, a British great economist. Man, great man. Yeah. And, great uh, influence on both of us. Yeah, in, indeed. He gave me my start. And uh, he asked a very high-level question about how are innovation, invention, and entrepreneurship linked? And how can we make sure that innovation does actually lead to improvements in life for ordinary people? Thank you, Eamon, for that question. Matt, your answer. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, in my view, the inventor is the the, the sort of pointy-headed chap in an ivory tower who thinks up something like a you know a new mousetrap or something. The innovator is the guy who um, works hard with a lot of collaboration with a lot of other people to turn that new mousetrap into a product that actually works and is reliable and affordable and all that kind of thing. Uh, and the entrepreneur is the guy who then runs the company um, selling the mousetrap. But there's overlap between all of those. Sometimes they're all three one person. So Marconi is a nice example of an inventor who was also an innovator because he did the hard work of turning his ideas about radio into a practical device. And he was also an entrepreneur in the sense that he ended up running a huge company called Marconi. So sometimes it's the same guy but sometimes it's not. That's my off-the-top-of-my-head answer to, um, to Eamon. What was the second part of his question? Well, just how can we make sure that innovation does actually indeed improve uh, the lives of ordinary people? Uh, well, I don't think we need to worry too much about that. If an innovation doesn't improve the lives of ordinary people, they won't buy it. <laughs> it's that simple. I mean, Google Glass is a very nice example of that. It's a beautiful technology invented by Google X, the sort of skunk works of Google. And it um, it developed a device whereby you can, I don't know, read the stock market on the inside of your spectacles or you know, see your emails or something. It's it's a it's a pair of spectacles with a with a pop-up device in it. Um, and uh, it cost the, the the first version cost two and a half thousand dollars and uh, they put it out there and nobody bought it. So they took it back and said, well, we're going to redesign it and make it a bit cheaper and make it a bit better. Well, six or seven years later, we're all still waiting. Um, they eventually realized that there was no demand for this. Now, 
I don't say it's a bad product or a dangerous product. I don't think it is, but it's not wanted. So why do we need to worry about the products that are not wanted? If they don't bring benefit to people, then on the whole, they're not going to happen. Of course, there are exceptions to that rule. Uh, a particularly virulent form of anthrax would be an invention, if you like, right. uh, which an evil guy could invent. And we want to have rules to stop that kind of innovation coming into the market. Same with computer viruses. But I remember learning a key lesson about computer viruses many years ago, 15 years ago, when I one infected my laptop, it crashed, it was a crucial moment, I was trying to finish a book, it was a disaster, everything was on my laptop, I was sort of wailing and screaming, um, and my wife calmed down and said, look, you go on another computer, you look up the, um, the, the, the patch that solves this problem, you download it onto a memory stick, you stick it in yours, and we'll be back to square one she's better at computers than i am um and uh, sure enough that happened and i remember thinking the interesting thing is that i can go on a website and find open conversation about how to solve this particular virus i can't go on a website and find open conversation about how to make this virus even more dangerous that has to be done in the dark the good guys are working in the light the bad guys are working in the dark that that's why the good guys are always going to win in the end Right. Well, Matt, we're coming up against the uh, the end of our time together today, but I want to ask you something counterintuitive, which is that in your new book and most of your books, you talk about the dangers of trying to uh, engage in techno predictions and sort of crystal ball gazing. And you, you have some wonderful quotes, one of which I want to read here, which is that um, innovation seems so obvious in retrospect, but is impossible to predict at the time. Um, and you also note uh, some innovation is speeding up, certainly, but some is slowing down. So I want you to want to ask you, what, what are you bearish and bullish about going forward? Because you already mentioned earlier in our discussion that there are some things that just probably aren't possible or doable. In my own work, in my most recent book, I talk about the problems of technologies that are born free versus born into regulatory captivity and sort of talk about how the born free technologies are a much easier go of it for innovators and entrepreneurs those technologies that are immediately pigeonholed into old regulatory boxes, you know, square pegs, round holes problem, very, very hard for innovation to take place there. So there's a policy angle to this, and then there's a sort of a technical angle to this. But what are you bullish and or bearish on and or why? Hmm. Um, lovely question. And um, I should answer it by saying, you know, better than to answer questions about the future um, right. and, so, and make a fool of yourself. But I've thought for some time that the next 50 years are not going to be dominated by innovations in computing and communications to the same extent that the last 50 years have. Uh, and that instead biomedicine is going to be where the exciting stuff is happening. Just, you know, this last two weeks, the, the idea of messenger RNA vaccines is a very nice example of a, um, of the kind of rapid change that I think we're going to be seeing in biotechnology as applies as applied to human medicine, particularly. Um, uh, I think that's where the exciting stuff is coming. I think we're going to see ways of dealing with aging, ways of dealing with cancer, ways of de-extinguishing extinct species. You know, uh, that's not medical, but it's biological, etc. So I'm bullish uh, on that. I'm bearish, as I said, in the relative short term on our ability to transform transport. I can't see electric aeroplanes. 
uh, or even hydrogen-powered airplanes replacing kerosene-powered airplanes in the short run and possibly not even in the long run. Uh, I think it's very hard to um, uh, imagine uh, ocean uh, trade and interstate trucks um, being uh, electrified or where we're going to get enough electricity from if if they do. Um, Yes, it can be done, but boy, you need a lot of resources to build the batteries and the systems to power them and so on. Um, So uh, I think we are, and and at the same time, I don't think driverless cars are coming as fast as we think. Yes, there's a lot of assisted stuff coming along that stops you having accidents and uh, warns you when you're about to run into someone and all that stuff that augments the driver's um, safety and experience in all sorts of ways. And a lot of that's already here. I mean, just, you know, just think of GPS. That's If that's not artificial intelligence, telling you how long it's going to take you to get to your destination and whether or not there's a blockage on the way, if that's not artificially intelligent, what the heck is artificially intelligent? Right. Yeah. But once, it's, once we got it, we don't call it artificial intelligence. So there's a lot of that stuff coming. But the moment when you sit in the back seat of your car with nobody in the front seat, uh, dozing quietly while your car takes you all the way from your home to your destination. I don't think that's 10 years away. I think that's 30 years away um, uh, because there's a huge difficulty in going from the nearly there to the there in that case. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair point. I think uh, many of us, including myself, probably early on about driverless cars were guilty of a little bit of irrational exuberance, if you will, about the, pro- the prospects of uh, – the technology catching on, but we're already seeing, as you as you pointed out, incremental uh, innovations that are quite important. But of course, one of the things that might be holding back the sort of major innovations, the leapfrog innovations that we're hoping for, especially in things like driverless cars, is going back to the point you talked about earlier, and you talk about repeatedly in your book about special interests, vested interests, and other opponents of change trying to stop this. Uh, uh, we talk about it in, in the context of the United States. Every single day in the United States, 6,500 people are injured and 100 people die in automobile fatalities. And the uh, United States government points out that 94% of those accidents are attributable to human error. And as always, I try to point out to people when debating this, it's like, you know, say what you want about robot uh, cars or trucks, but they don't get drunk, drowsy, or distracted. And you have to believe that they can make a huge dent in that tragic public health uh, horror story. It is human operated vehicles as much as I like to drive. And I love to drive. I, I, I've got a little Lotus, an old Lotus that I love. And uh, it's wow. my dream. Um, but that being said, I know I'm getting older. And at some point, I probably shouldn't be behind the wheel or I'd love to have more driver assistance. Exactly. No, I'd, I'd be great if it happened. And 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 it's almost easier in the air. I mean, you know, and until the, the those two accidents with the 737 MAX, MAX 8, the, the the majority of air accidents in the previous few years had been uh, because uh, pilots were committing suicide or making stupid decisions and if you could if you could take the pilot out of the equation and leave it to the automatic pilot we'd have been safer boeing then seemed to come up with a design with a with a faulty uh, automatic pilot um, partly because of desperately trying to save fuel to be more uh, fuel efficient would you feel safer if when you stepped onto the airplane, you glanced to the left into the cockpit and saw that there was nothing there, just a machine? Um, I like to think I would. I like to think I would be the kind of techno optimist who would say that's good news, not bad. 
But I admit a slight shiver would run down my spine, and I think even more down many, many other people's spines. Indeed, that's quite right. In fact, there's there's varying estimates about what percentage of current airplanes, uh, you know, uh, mechanics and, te- and and activities are already automated, but it's well over 90% already. And, and we're getting to the point where really the pilot is there to give us greater peace of mind. And uh, <laughs> the point I wanted to make about driverless cars, specifically driverless trucks and driverless trains, is that the debate we've been having in the United States has often been driven by people who are trying to preserve jobs in those sectors against change, because obviously we could probably automate some of those things before we drive, we automate all of our, you know, day-to-day driverless cars that average uh, people are driving. Easier to imagine like long haul freight, uh, specifically on rails, uh, being more automated quicker. And yet we've already had in the United States policy debates about automation that would say, no, you've got to have a minimal number of people um, driving these these trains and these and these trucks. And and so already we see the opposition to change formulated uh, in, in the form of a sort of traditional old Luddite concern, right? It's just going to take our jobs. Yep. Um, and then they use the pretext of safety and hence the precautionary principle uh, idea is born. Yeah. Cra- the crash over the Southern Atlantic in the, I think, 1990s of an Air France plane was very interesting because the, the experienced pilots gone to sleep and the two inexperienced pilots had remarkably few hours without the automatic pilot on. Right. And they misread the situation. Right. And so that's why this 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 moment of transition from yeah. you know the, there's a moment when you know your kids and mine have been in driverless cars for um most of their lives and then suddenly one day there's a snowstorm on the freeway and the the the, the, the automatic pilot says uh, I can't cope you've got to take over and they've not done well, we, you and me we haven't dri- driven for years what do we you know what do we do then we've forgotten how to do it so there, there are some uncomfortable moments getting from a to b on in this stuff absolutely no doubt so i'm going to close matt with a question both from our audience and then a, a general one back to you because you mentioned intellectual property very briefly earlier it's something you talk about in the book and it's continues to be a controversial subject among people who generally defend innovation uh, it is a, something the government does, and it's a, a role that many people do defend. I, I want to ask you about your views on intellectual property, but also a question from Nathaniel Smith, where he talks about how uh, much of literature uh, in the 19th century of innovation talks about how protection against foreign competitors might have helped uh, create innovation, and that maybe there's this argument of sort of infant industry protection mm-hmm. as something government should do. Uh, to try to help uh, domestic innovators uh, take root. Uh, so maybe you can use those two questions about intellectual property and infant industry protection to sort of close things out for us here about uh, what role government should have in both of those cases. Yeah, no, they, they, these are both very interesting questions and and ones that I, you know, I'm not prepared to be dogmatic that there's only one answer to either of them. Uh, on the whole, I think most infant industry recommendations are wrong, uh, that you're better off uh, sharing and learning from uh, others. If you look at the experiences of countries like India, which said actually we're better off doing our own and keeping out competitors, and you end up with Campa Cola, which is a disastrous um, imitation of Coca Cola. Um, uh, that that's the worry. And yes, uh, the United States was very very protective of its uh, early industries um, in the hope that. Um, other people didn't pinch the best ideas. Uh, but I, I'm not convinced that that was the reason it became a successful country. 
it's a similar argument about intellectual property. Um, you can see the argument for some intellectual property that if, if an inventor is to invent something, he can't just have everyone rip him off immediately. But actually in practice, empirically, around the world, in different industries at different times, the, the evidence that uh, giving someone a monopoly reward uh, for inventing something helps to stimulate innovation is very poor indeed. Countries that, that strengthen their intellectual property don't see more innovation. Industries that weaken their intellectual property, like the music industry recently, don't see less innovation. Um, uh, and when uh, patents expire uh, or copyrights expire, you get a ferment of, of innovation. Um, so while there is clearly a case to be made for some, I, I'm with Alex Tabarak here that, that, that we need to find a, a, a happy medium between uh, too much and too little uh, intellectual property. And I think the very phrase intellectual property often misleads people on the free market end of the spectrum because they're in favour of private property. They think they ought to be in favour of intellectual property. And I'm not sure that's right. I think the analogy uh, isn't a very good one. Um, it's true that you can't, uh, occupy a house and have everyone else occupy it too but that's not true of an invention you can uh, invent something and share it you've got to share it with other people and just a final point on that about seven or eight years ago when i first joined the house of lords i walked into the chamber for the first pretty well the first time and they were debating a, a, an intellectual property bill which was extending copyright to 75 years after the death of the author well that's great for me or rather it's not it's great for my grandchildren um but i thought well, hang on what's this for why are we doing this mm -hmm. and i looked into it it turned out we were doing it because the because the copyright on mickey mouse was due to expire and the disney corporation had gone around the world lobbying government saying please please extend copyright to 75 years after the death of the author well, I'm sorry, that's outrageous. Um, <laughs> my, if my grandchildren want money, they should earn it. They shouldn't try and live off my books. They won't get rich off my books, so it's irrelevant. <laughs> you know, it, it's a true. It, it's very true that uh, it, this is a, a controversial debate. And I, when I briefly worked at the Cato Institute in the early 2000s, I, I, I wrote one of my books was on intellectual property called Copy Fights. And uh -huh. uh, I've always been sort of a sort of a raging moderate, mushy moderate on these issues, but. Just to have fun, I used to walk in the Cato lunchroom and say, intellectual property is neither intellectual nor property. Discuss. And there would be food fights that would ensue. It was uh, it was quite ugly how good friends uh, in the liberty movement would go to war with each other. Over what was he do said about the Holy Roman Empire? It's neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, but it is an interesting debate. And, and you know, in, in terms of how other, other ways that governments can incentivize innovation, it's something I'm dealing with right now in the context of artificial intelligence, where governments are talking about just showering uh, technologies and innovators with lots of money. But one overlooked factor that governments have used through the year or, or tool is prizes. And just maybe briefly, just you can sneak in a final word about this, because I find this really, really interesting. Uh, the late Bill Niskanen, who was the chief economist at Cato I worked with years ago, used to talk about how governments 
could should reconsider the use of maybe prizes as, a, as an incentivizing mechanism without resorting to full-blown intellectual property, copyright, or patent protection. You want to briefly mention that in the context of how that's working? I'm, I'm becoming an increasing fan of this. I only mentioned it briefly in my book, but actually uh, I think this is, this is the way to go. Instead of giving grants and subsidies, which end up going to the most politically connected, um, but don't end up uh, picking the winner sometimes, they often end up picking the loser, um, and instead of... Uh, intellectual property, which puts a fence around and stops further innovation after the invention um, for whatever, the life of the patent or whatever, uh, then if you dangle a prize in front of people saying, look, if you solve this problem, if you invent a vaccine for pneumococcus, which is killing kids in the third world, which is what the Gates Foundation did. They said, if you do that, pharmaceutical industry, we will reward you. It won't be a cash prize. It'll simply be an advanced market commitment. Every time you sell one of those uh, vaccine doses, we will make sure you receive more money than the, the poor people buying the vaccine can afford because we'll make, make up the difference. Uh, so it'll be available cheap, but you'll get a good reward. Um, that worked really well. So those kind of advanced market commitments, uh, and I can't remember who who it is who came up with them, not Tyler Cowen, but someone like that, um, are, a, uh, are, I think, a really smart way of rewarding innovation without preventing further innovation by other competitors um, and are a, a smart twist on the whole idea of the prize. Yeah, I like that too. And uh, in, here in the United States, the DARPA grand challenge for uh, autonomous vehicles yielded a lot of really interesting innovation in the 2000s. And the people that were involved in that competition went on to be some of the people that are now today founding uh, autonomous vehicle uh, systems and companies, which right. is really very good. And SpaceX is another example yeah. and, and so on. Yeah, no, Grand challenges are, are the way to go, I think. We yeah. started it, it 300 years ago with the Longitude Prize in, in, in the UK, and that's a very nice example because it was supposed to be won by an astronomer or a right. mathematician. Instead, a humble clockmaker won it, and everyone was right. furious. You know, we can't give the prize to him. He's just a clockmaker, John <laughs> But actually, you know, that was the answer. It came from an unexpected direction. So it makes room for serendipity. That's right. Another great example of the sort of bottom-up innovation you talk about repeatedly throughout your books. So, Matt, on that point, we're going to need to wrap up, but tell people where they can find this book or any other information about you and your work. Well, thank you very much. The book's available in all good bookstores, uh, including Amazon and, and other online ones. And uh, I'm uh, at mattridley.co.uk on the uh, web and uh, at Matt W. Ridley on Twitter. Well, thank you again to, for joining me today, Matt, for our discussion about the future of innovation policy. I encourage our viewers to uh, take a look at Mercatus.org, and you can find more of our work on innovation policy there, including some future work I plan to do. And thank you again, Matt Ridley, for joining me today, and thank all of you for tuning in, and have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.